G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. How you doing today, Dad? Good to be chatting on the podcast again, as always. Yes, good, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Now, we've called today's episode of the podcast Easing OCD. So, Dad, just give us a bit of a quick rundown. What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so OCD relates to obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's an anxiety-related condition that people often seek psychological help for this difficulty. It affects about 2% of the population. And obsessive-compulsive behaviour can be like washing your hands a lot because you think your hands are contaminated, but it's a really exaggerated thing like washing your hands 50 times a day or counting in your head or checking door locks a whole lot, but you might be spending an hour checking door locks rather than you know much briefer time. So obsessive-compulsive tendencies relate to this feeling of something going wrong and you have to act in some way to fix it and we're calling it easing OCD because generally people go best if they don't try and necessarily completely eliminate this behavior it often helps to tolerate some level of anxiety and just look to reduce or contain the compulsive behavior and gradually people get used to not having to act on the rituals so much. Well when I hear the word obsessional I suppose immediately what comes to mind is maybe a, a little kid with a train set that he can't put down or or there's an element of like we think of someone being obsessed as almost having a transfixed kind of passion about something. But how does the word obsessional relate to I suppose psychology in this sense? Okay, well I suppose obsessions in a way relate to some kind of stuck thinking. In that situation there's a kind of fixation or stuckness, but Obsessions in a psychological point of view are repeated intrusive thoughts. So an obsession is a thought and obsessional thoughts often relate to some kind of anxiety-related situation. For example, someone having an intrusive thought that something's going to go wrong. So we're a bit fixed on a certain kind of thought. It might be that we're fixated on the thought that we might not have locked the front door and we've got to keep on checking it or we've got to keep on checking the windows. Or it might be the obsessional thought that we have to count up to a certain number in our head for things to turn out okay. So obsessions relate to often an anxiety-related thought that something's going to go wrong. I suppose the classic one that I remember from childhood is that when you're walking along the street and you're kind of walking along the concrete pavement and there was that notion of if you step on a crack, you break your back and if you step on a line, you break your spine. So I remember as a little kid almost having this, yeah, it's kind of an irrational fear and I suppose you almost recognise it to be a kind of irrational fear at the time but at the same time, Geez, you wouldn't have caught me dead stepping on cracks back in the day. I relate to that as well. I can remember some specific situations coming up, even when I lived in Sydney as a kid, walking along and not stepping on cracks. And so that shows that we kind of know with obsessions that there's an exaggerated kind of fear. However, there can still be this feeling that you should or should not do some particular thing. So obsessive-compulsive behaviour overlaps with things that we might see or experience in everyday life. Is it then that you could almost liken obsessional tendencies to, I suppose, a superstition in some way? We see it in sport all the time where, for example, Rafael Nadal is the classic one where I believe to the end he's serving, all of his drink bottles have to be facing the exact same way. And... 
We see it in football codes all the time that within a team there might be many different individual superstitions. So can we almost liken obsessional tendencies in this way to almost like a superstition? I think we can. In a psychological sense, we might call it magical thinking. But in that case with the sports stars, I suspect that they might get some advantage from that because they might find that magical thinking, if you have your bottles lined up a certain way, you might feel more confident It kind of takes a complicated situation, a very complex situation of, say, playing tennis in a final, and it brings it back to something that you can control. But that's part of the downside of obsessive-compulsive tendencies. We might have this obsession of doing things a certain way, and the compulsion is we feel compelled to act in a way to get more control. But that can be a really exaggerated form of magical thinking that can sometimes entrap us, make us feel like we have to do this and it can waste a lot of time and cause a lot of anxiety if we don't do it. So I suppose to almost take a broad look at it, in that sense the obsession from obsessive compulsive disorder is almost like the thought and then the compulsion is kind of like the behaviour that reacts to the thought. Exactly. And so it's a particular type of behaviour, it's looking to neutralise the anxiety, it's looking to undo the problem. For example, maybe if the drink bottles aren't lined up the right way, well, you know, won't play so well, lose some points, lose the game kind of thing. Oh, well, the compulsion then is I need to reduce that risk, undo the thought of something being wrong by lining the bottles up in a certain way, but then there's the payoff of feeling you control the world more than actually we can control the world. It's a bit of magical thinking that adds to that confidence. Well, I suppose what strikes me there is that there's many regular people that have these obsessional thoughts. Like, as I say, I can certainly relate to it from childhood. And even these days, I suppose the odd thing kind of pops into your head. I remember when I was living in England and I had a friend who they had this weird superstition where if you stepped on three kind of drains all connected in a row, you had to kick someone in the shin and spin around three times or something like that. And it was fine if you stepped on a two drain or a four drain, but if it was a three drain, you had to sort of go through this ritual. So of course, I didn't really know about it. So it took me a little while to get my head around while I was getting bloody kicked in the shins all the time. (laughs) There's an example, isn't it, of magical thinking that comes up in everyday life and a number of people start to share a ritual. But it's also partly this idea that we can, in everyday life, have some weird thoughts that pop into our mind. Many people could relate to the idea of, oh, I might have said something wrong or I might be about to blurt out the wrong thing. I've got to be careful what I do or say here. Many people could relate to that idea, but also, look, I can think of times of being high up in a building on a balcony looking down far below and having the thought, oh, what if I jumped off? And I've got no inclination to jump off or anything like that. It's just an intrusive thought that's popped in. And uh, fortunately, in this situation, from asking other people, they've actually said, yeah, sometimes they've had a bit of that feeling themselves or that thought passes through their mind, even though they wouldn't act on it at all either. Maybe there's a certain limit, though, because I can remember a Monty Python skit where one of the characters said, well, do you know when you get that feeling of, like, burning down the local school? Well, I know I do. (laughs) Well, it seems to me, like we've spoken a little bit on the podcast before, that obsessional tendencies and the compulsion to act on them relates a little bit to the ideas of chaos and order, in the sense that maybe the 
compulsive behavior is some reaction to try and make more order out of the chaos that someone is presented with or assert a little bit more order over the world? Yes, look, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think that with obsessive compulsive tendencies, they're very much about looking to go too much for the order. And yeah, much is about finding a a balance of being flexible, but still having routines and structure that helps us be more efficient. But I think of this in terms of a point that Daniel Siegel made. A psychiatrist was talking about a healthy balance around our emotions and functioning. And he said that any person or any organisation will function better when we're in a FACES state. F-A-C-E-S. Any system works better when it's flexible, adaptive, coherent, energised and stable, whether it be a workplace or whether it be a person handling a certain situation. And so with obsessive compulsive behaviour, we might be going for the coherent and stable, but we might miss out on the flexible, adaptable and energised. Too much order, too concerned about being over-controlled, lest we be in chaos and then missing out on the flexibility. So are some people more likely than others to have obsessional tendencies and therefore likely to develop OCD? Well, yes, and and part of this might be somewhat biological as well. We might be influenced by our genes and experiences to a degree as well. But personality-wise, there's a pattern that tends to lead more to OCD tendencies called high neuroticism, high introversion, these personality dimensions. Now, unfortunately, like a lot of psychological terms, there can be a negative connotation, and we'll look a bit past that, but high neuroticism, basically that means high sensitivity. So it means that our central nervous system is probably more reactive, so it can be more prone to anxiety under stress. But that can also be a good thing being sensitive because we can pick up on our feelings a bit quicker. We might pick up if something's going wrong a bit sooner. We might be a little bit more attuned, interpersonally sensitive to other people's reactions that can help with empathy. But that's one tendency. And the high I relates to introversion. So introversion when we tend to be more stimulated from thoughts from within and more oriented towards our own thoughts and images in our mind. And if you put that high N, the higher sensitivity, and the high I, the internal orientation together, then there are actually some positive characteristics that come with this. Apart from that interpersonal sensitivity, there can be attention to detail. We can be more conscientious. It can help us be reliable. We can be attuned to minor changes in things around us and pick them up maybe a little bit earlier. But the problem is under stress. Under stress, we're more likely to have these intrusive, repetitive thoughts. And so we're more prone to what we call rumination or thoughts going around in our mind again and again and again, more prone to anxious thoughts. And so when does it become a problem for someone? Because as we discussed, it's potentially not such a rare thing for people to have these kind of weird thoughts. But at what point do we, I suppose, diagnose someone as having the disordered version? Yes, look, I actually might mention it first when I think of the positives before moving on to the difficulties. Just to mention, I know that I've got some obsessional tendencies myself. And actually many psychologists, I believe, do. 
many people have that attention to detail, that interpersonal sensitivity, maybe a tendency to overthink things to a degree. Now, there's some advantages in being prone to that kind of thinking, that kind of sensitivity, but the problem is under stress, if it leads to extra distress or if it interferes with our functioning in some way. Like we're getting overly caught up in negative or worrisome thoughts. Also, we can get more caught up in perfectionism and we can get more caught up in thinking of things going wrong and overreacting to our thoughts. So some of the advantages of the attention to detail, for example, I personally find in applying to doing research and don't mind repetitive kind of work looking at statistics and detail, but under extra stress, then it can be a liability for example, overthinking things. When it boils down to it, it's when it interferes with our life in such a way that it causes undue distress or it interferes with our functioning in various roles in our life, like it interferes with our work or our leisure or our relationships in some way, so it gets in the way. And like other disorders, there's a degree of subjectivity in whether we give it a label or not. But basically, with OCD, that's going to become a significant problem, for example, if people are spending more than one hour checking a day. Or they're really plagued by distress about whether they might have contaminated other people or whether they might have caused harm to someone or whether their house is about to burn down. And also, people can get so caught up in their obsessions that it interferes with their focus on other things that they're doing so they can't work as well or disrupts their activity in some way. So basically it's affecting our functioning or causing great distress that interferes with our life in a significant way. Well, it's something that you quite often hear in the sense that people so often kind of say, oh, I'm a bit OCD about this or I'm a bit OCD about that. And it's almost become a bit of a buzzword. But as you describe that, it really seems to me that there's a marked difference between looking at a symmetrical array of shapes for example and one of them slightly off like that's a little bit more to do with an aesthetic thing than it is to do with sort of obsessive compulsive disorder isn't it yes and i suppose obsessional tendencies like other personality attributes will be partly on a dimension and will vary and many of us might have some element of obsessionality i would have a little bit more than most and i draw on that in my everyday life but it's important not to belittle the massive difficulty and the huge distress that a number of people can have with OCD. For example, if someone is really fearful that they are likely to sexually abuse someone else when it's just no likelihood whatsoever, or they believe that they might well contaminate other people if they don't wash their hands for the 40th time this morning. The level of distress that people can experience in terms of fear of harm to themselves or others or fear that they might have done something to hurt or kill someone else, if people really feel that that might be true at the time, that can cause massive distress. And you can imagine that people can go to great lengths to try and undo those thoughts or prevent those consequences, even if deep down they feel that they know it's not true, but this feeling of such a compulsion, it's very hard not to act on that. So in that case, what's the difference then between obsessive compulsive disorder and acting on these compulsions and say psychosis? Because as you describe that there, I suppose what comes to mind is almost psychotic thoughts in the sense that there's an irrationality to them that people are acting on. That's something that we relate to psychosis normally, isn't it? 
Yes, well, psychosis basically means that our thoughts depart from reality and our reality testing is not working at all well. And so we would use the example of delusions as being a thought where someone has an absolute 100% belief that something is true. For example, they might believe that someone really is out to poison them, for example. And if you ask them, do you really think that's true? The person really thinks it's true. Whereas with obsessive compulsive thoughts and the obsessions, the person knows that the fear or the anxiety, they know the thought is exaggerated. And so like any phobic anxiety where someone has a fear of heights or snakes or whatever, the person knows that their fear is exaggerated so they still have that reality testing. And so we say that obsessional thoughts, by definition, are what we call ego-dystonic, meaning not fitting in with my usual thinking. I know they're not realistic and yet you feel as though it's true. And so that's one of the challenges that people know that the thoughts aren't realistic, so they still have their reality testing, but it still feels true, so no level of argument or debating with it is really going to help. Like if other people try and convince them, oh, but it's not really so much of a danger, the person kind of knows that, but at the time they'll feel as though it's true. So in that case then, how is it that someone, for example, has these thoughts, I suppose, recognises the bizarreness or potentially the irrationality in them? Why is it then that we can't just sort of say, that's an irrational thought, I'm not going to do that, there's no one out to get me or there's nothing on my hands? Why can't we almost think our way out of that situation? Well, sometimes we have certain kinds of impulses or reactions that are so strongly built in in terms of the image or the feeling that goes with it that we can't just use rational thoughts to get at it. And look, I'll give an example of of how it might come up. I've seen a few people who've had the thought that they might have run someone over on the road. They've gone over a bump and they've had to turn around and go back and see that they haven't run someone over. I've known three people who've had that kind of reaction. Now, it's an impulse and a feeling that they have. Now, this might be a bit speculative, but sometimes I think that there might be some experience people have had that indirectly can influence having that thought or hidden feeling, so to speak, that background impulse or urge, what might contribute to that. At least a couple of those people themselves had experienced past sexual abuse. And so I can't help but wonder whether their feeling of causing untoward harm towards someone else that they have to take responsibility for, I can't help wondering whether part of that was influenced by them experiencing something where harm happened to them, the perpetrator took no responsibility for it, and so they're left with this extra feeling of responsibility themselves for the abuse that they went through and whether that in a distorted way in their mind gets carried over into the feeling of potentially causing untoward harm to others. So sometimes our minds can work in quite weird ways that are really hard to fully understand how that might work. 
but maybe sometimes there are some background experiences, maybe someone who's concerned that their house might burnt down in terms of leaving the gas on, maybe there was a previous time that someone in their family had left the gas on, for example, and that became part of their thinking. But there are some times where it just really seems to be a thought out of the blue and the person just is plagued by this feeling of something going wrong and it's hard to make any sense of it. So if someone then does almost have this disconnect between the somatic in terms of what they're feeling and the rational in terms of what they're thinking, how do we then almost rejoin that up together in terms of how do we align the feelings that someone experiences with the thoughts that they experience? Well, look, I think one thing is, first of all, looking to reduce the kind of power or impact of these irrational thoughts. And when it boils down to it, that's not going to happen by any kind of argument or debate or trying just to look at it rationally. In a sense, the thoughts have that impact if we focus on them. Part of it is to take distance from the thoughts, to step back from them, not have to get rid of them, not have to eliminate them, recognise to some extent that they're there, but not acting on them, not feeding them. The main thing is if we act in a compulsive way to undo the thought, such as washing our hands any number of times, to undo the thought that will contaminate other people, it actually just feeds the thought. So in a sense, what we have to do is to look to tolerate the anxiety, just allow some of the anxiety to be there, but not to act on the thought, not to reinforce or feed it. And that means taking distance from it, we call it decentering from our thoughts or distancing ourselves from the thoughts. And then basically we've got a chance of then testing the reality and seeing, even if it's uncomfortable, seeing that in time these terrible things don't happen, that we haven't run someone over, that the house isn't burning down, that we haven't contaminated other people. And in time that can help it sink in, that these thoughts, these intrusions... They don't have to control us. We don't have to give them so much power. We can not even have to eliminate them, more step back and take some of the power away from them by not acting on them. In time, that might not eliminate the thought, but it can reduce its impact and the anxiety that goes with it so it can come less frequently and be less troublesome. Well, I can imagine it's a bit of a tricky thing in the sense that The more that you try not to think about something, the more that you end up thinking about it. It's a little bit like that idea of don't think of a pink elephant and what's the first thing that pops into your head. Of course, it's a pink elephant sort of thing. So I imagine that it's something that's not necessarily easy to almost kind of watch these thoughts almost pass by us. So what are some ways that you'd suggest that people do that, that people are able to almost take a bit of that distance? Okay, now this is a key point that you're making and it's to do with the problems of thought suppression. If people try and suppress their thoughts, just like you described like the pink elephant, research shows that people's thoughts will become more troublesome and their anxiety actually will often increase if they try and eliminate or just suppress the thoughts. It doesn't work. So one of the best ways I've heard of dealing with that problem in terms of tolerating the thoughts but not feeding them, is to treat the thoughts like bubbles in lemonade. What do we imagine we could do to make the bubbles less fizzy? Well, if we tried to squish them out with our finger, like eliminate them, that would just make the lemonade more fizzy. In a sense, what we have to do is to let the lemonade go flat. 
Now, that can be tricky because that can be over a period of time before the thoughts will really lessen and become less disruptive, but it's allowing some of the fizziness, some of the disruption to be there and more let it go flat rather than trying to eliminate the thoughts. As you described that there, it reminds me of the addressing avoidance episode that we did there. And it seems to me that when we have these obsessional tendencies, they're potentially caused by anxious feelings that lay there in the background and potentially like avoidance, learning to sort of muddle through or learning to deal with those anxious feelings a little bit will help us in the long run. Exactly. And we get back to the theme of tolerating anxiety tolerating it rather than trying to eliminate it. So funnily enough, dealing with obsessional thoughts, one of the best ways that we can face our discomfort is to do nothing. Meaning the thoughts are there, the obsessions are there, but we do nothing. And by not engaging in the compulsion of the extra washing of our hands or checking or whatever, we give a chance to show that the anxious thought about a consequence, that does not come true. And we can increase our confidence of not acting on the thought and that helps take away the power and the threat of the thought. Is it then a similar time frame in terms of, say, that four-month idea for a habit to become more developed? Are we then looking at roughly, say, about four months before someone changes their functioning in that way? Now, I think it can be more complicated with obsessive-compulsive disorder, and I'll give a couple of different examples of timeframes. Many people with more severe obsessive-compulsive disorder where it affects many aspects of their life, there might be hours each day in combination that people have spent with checking, there might be washing, it also can overlap with hoarding in different kind of ways, then sometimes people are going to more be managing with that over a lengthy period of time. Maybe a number of people will be managing it over a lifetime, but looking to curb its impact and so reduce the distress, reduce the impact on their lives. But there are some times where there can be quicker changes. And I'll give one example. One young lady I know had a main problem with checking. It was more minor than some, but it was disruptive. Each time she left her front door, she would go back, turn to the front door with the key in it and go click, 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 make sure that the door was locked. Then she'd go click, click again. Then she looked to move off, but then feel stuck there. And she could spend at least five or ten minutes which could be pretty disruptive when you're looking to leave for work each day. But what we talked about is when you act on a behaviour again and again and again, it becomes a well-worn groove, the behaviour. And like any behaviour we practice again and again and again, it's influenced by neuroplasticity. We've formed a neural network or a pathway, a literal pathway in our brain that says go down this pathway and do such and such. And what we talked about is in neuroplasticity, we can actually create a new synapse or brain connection in 90 minutes and a new neuron will develop in a month or new brain cell and that will mature in four months. So we talked about this and we said, hey, all you need to do in 90 minutes is to develop an inhibitory synapse, meaning a brain connection that says don't go down that pathway Go down this one. The new pathway is turning 180 degrees on your heels, walking straight down the path, out the gate, and then off to work. So we talked about establish that new pathway and let go of the old one 
an inhibitory synapse. So she understood that well and understood the idea of it. And so for the next days when she was going to leave, she recognised the impulse or the feeling, the obsession about I need to check the door lock, but instead of engaging in the compulsion and putting a key in check, check, check kind of thing, she thought, no, okay, turn 180 degrees, walk straight down the pathway out the gate, off to work, and she imagined the new brain connections that she was creating for this new pathway. And she kept on doing that for more than a month. I spoke to her some months later, and she mentioned the first month she'd gone very well. Then after four weeks, she noticed at one point that she was actually checking with the key in the door lock, and then she suddenly said to herself, wrong groove, turned around 180 degrees, walked in the pathway, out the gate, off to work, And she felt that self-efficacy or confidence of realising that she was establishing a new pathway. And she went well with that for months and months down the track and ongoing. So that was an example of a quicker way of changing an obsessive compulsive kind of behaviour. But I think some people have such established difficulties that it's more about curbing its impact on their lives, limiting it learning at times to contain the rituals. For example, delaying the hand washing or reducing the amount of time spent on the checking. Or sometimes people can disrupt a ritual by instead of, for example, organising things in a row with their right hand, like one young girl I know organised things in a bathroom and spent like an hour or two organising them a certain way, but she used her left hand instead of her right hand to organise them and looked to gradually cut back the amount of time that she was doing that and making gradual progress. So you can get the more sudden change, like the person walking out the gate. You can get the more incremental change, like this girl gradually cutting back the time for checking or spending time checking windows before going to bed, that kind of thing. But some people, their obsessional thoughts and OCD behaviours will increase around times of stress. If there's been some loss or trauma or, for example, the impact of COVID or things that impact on one's life, we allow for there being an increase in some of those behaviours and just looking to contain it to some extent. But where people can resist, that's what helps the most. It's the process we call exposure and response prevention. Exposure, you face the situation. Response prevention, don't act on the particular ritual. To the extent that people can cut back their rituals over a period of four months or so, that idea, then we can be confident that people's brain connections are changing as well. Is it then about recognising which of our behaviours are compulsive and then looking to develop, like, for lack of a better term, a tool belt of mental infrastructure to be able to deal with all that? So, for example, if someone's washing their hands a lot, is it about first getting them to recognise the amount that they're washing their hands and then, for example when they are washing their hands and when they find themselves in that situation, almost a little kind of switch that they can flick to then move on from that. Yes, you're mentioning the idea of moving on or switching to another activity. And this is a key thing that we explain to people that can maybe help come up with something like you're suggesting. And it relates to the idea of brain lock. So how our brain is affected with OCD, there are three parts of the brain affected. First of all, people have one part of their brain, a part of the frontal lobes, that picks up a mistake feeling. 
And all of us will relate to the idea of a feeling when you've made a mistake and you try and fix it, you try and undo it. So first of all, there's a mistake feeling that might be from an overactive part of the frontal lobes. Then that links to a feeling of anxiety about needing to fix the mistake. And that's a part of our brain called the cingulate gyrus, which is responsible for this feeling of anxiety and looking to fix the situation. And then when we look to act in a way to fix a situation, there's a third part of our brain, the chordate nucleus, that helps us move on. It's like saying, yes, that mistake has been fixed, move on. But the problem with OCD, for example, someone might have washed their hands and there might be an initial feeling of the anxiety coming down, addressing the mistake of, I've got dirty hands, but this feeling of moving on isn't working so well. So that's what we call brain lock. So if someone can develop an alternative behaviour to move on, like that example we mentioned, the woman turning around 180 degrees, walking down the path, out the gate, that kind of thing, I think that might be one way of helping in a number of situations. Moving on to another activity, hopefully something engaging our attention, something that gets our attention onto something else, maybe something that we enjoy or something that we feel gives us a sense of satisfaction in some way if we've got little activities that we might engage in like that. But some distraction could help. The main idea is we have to manually move ourselves on. We're not automatically necessarily going to have the feeling that that mistake has been corrected, but we need to move on regardless. I suppose one question that I have now is, how might you best deal with, say, a family member or a friend who has OCD? Well, look, I think one of the things for family members is to have some understanding of it, to recognise that the person themselves knows that the thought and the reactions aren't so rational, and yet there's this very strong impulse to act on it. And it's very uncomfortable, the level of distress and anxiety that can go with that. So first of all, appreciating that and not expecting that any kind of advice in itself is going to make it make a difference. But by the same token, being understanding and encouraging is is one thing and generally supportive in everyday life. That certainly helps. But not to reinforce the rituals either. Like if a family made such an adaptation, for example, to the rituals of a family member that everybody completely worked around it, then that could be unwittingly reinforcing the rituals as well. So It can be a tricky balance. We're looking for some acceptance and tolerance, particularly understanding of how it works, but nor to be overly accommodating or reinforcing of the ritual. So I think part of it is understanding that the person is working on an approach of looking to tolerate the anxiety and allow for that being an uncomfortable kind of process. But I think also in families where there's a very severe level of OCD by a family member, To not get overly caught up in trying to fix the situation or take responsibility for the situation oneself, it's also important for people to find other ways that they're engaging in worthwhile things in their everyday life and being able to attend their own interests in some ways, not be overly drawn into arranging all the family activities around the rituals and things like that. So being wary of reinforcing it as well. Well, I wonder if, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but... It seems to me one thing that might, I suppose, make it easier to, for lack of a better term, deal with someone with OCD 
is that it seems to me, and we spoke a little bit before about the I personality type, the introversion personality type, it seems to me that it's a little bit more of an internal disorder than, say, for example, anger reactions, which is a bit more of an external reaction. So it seems to me that many of the examples that you've explained, there's almost an interpersonal element to it. It's not wanting to leave the house open so someone else comes in and steals all of our stuff. It's not wanting to leave the stove on so it burns the house down. And and it seems to me that it's things that affect more than just the individual. So I wonder if there's an element of, for lack of a better term, empathy that comes with OCD in the sense that you are kind of looking out for people on an interpersonal level. You're looking out for others. And so OCD strikes me as something that, although it's, you know, it can be certainly distressing for the individual, it's not as if you're, I suppose, trespassing on too many people around you. Yes, and that can be very awkward for people with OCD, feelings of guilt or responsibility for the impact on others. Often people have that sensitivity that you're describing. They're very concerned not to cause any hurt or harm to others, and it's a struggle to feel that their symptoms or reactions might inconvenience other people. But yes, a lot of the kind of obsessional thoughts often relate to a concern of harm to others in some way. And so this gets at the attitudes that people might be at risk of, of having an inflated sense of responsibility, an exaggerated sense of threat, an exaggerated concern of harming others. And it's difficult to do, but sometimes people have to kind of tolerate the idea that their mind is telling them that they might have harmed other people. But it's important to, in a sense, let go of that thought or step back from it, or at least not act on that, and kind of trust that this harm won't happen. Now, if people are concerned about other people's well-being, it can be hard to just sit back and take it on trust that other people won't be harmed when you feel that they will be, but that's what it takes. That's that facing the fear, not acting on the thought, and in time, people can recognise that these harmful outcomes aren't happening, and so that can help them have a somewhat lesser sense of threat or responsibility or having to control things and that helps tolerate the uncertainty but like you're saying part of the motive comes from a good place concern for other people and it seems to me from everything that we've described today that there's strong similarities between OCD and smoking and other addictive behaviors that way because the way that you just described that that whole idea of letting a thought pass it could almost be letting a craving pass that we could employ that thinking in the same way. So could it then be seen that, for example, smoking is almost like an obsessive compulsive behavior because we might have an underlying anxiety which leads us to crave a cigarette and then the compulsion is the behavior of actually having a cigarette? Yes, well, there's certainly overlap in terms of having some kind of urge to do something to manage a feeling of some discomfort or distress. And so that's where there'd be the overlap with addictions and OCD. So with addictions, for example, we call it urge surfing. If the person has an urge to have a cigarette, then if they resist that urge, say over a period of two or three hours, at first the urge might be strong and might get strong for five or ten minutes, and the person might have the feeling that if they don't 
have a cigarette or act on the urge, then the feeling of discomfort will just build and build and build and keep on building until they just can't stand it anymore, when in fact it's not quite like that. What happens with urge surfing is typically after half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, the urge has reached a peak, it goes up, it levels off, and then it comes down. And that's why we call it riding it out as urge surfing. And I think that same analogy can work with OCD, as you're mentioning, you can have the impulse, the obsession and the feeling that you need to, for example, wash your hands, but resisting the urge, the chances are, if you observe it, it'll rise, it'll reach a peak and eventually settle to some extent or ordering the things in your bathroom in a certain order or whatever. So I think that parallel and looking at the urge surfing idea is a helpful one. Our distress will not just keep on building forever. It will reach a peak, level off and come down. It's about people going toward their discomfort, allowing these situations just to sit when they feel that they should be doing something to improve it or change it. And for this, I'll just mention one final analogy that helps understand OCD and ways of getting around it. And it relates to a bee trap. There's this bee trap idea that if we made a bee trap by getting, for example, a two litre bottle of milk... And then we put a little bit of honey in the bottom of this empty bottle of milk and turned it upside down. And then around the mouth of the milk bottle, the lower third of the milk bottle, we covered it with dark tape. And then if we hung it up somewhere, it would become a bee trap because what would happen is bees would come for the honey. They'd go into the bottle and get at the honey up near the top. But then when they looked to escape or leave they would notice it's light at the top of the bottle and so they would try and fly out by going upwards. They would not go down to the dark part of the bottle down the bottom because bees go to the light. And then it would be a trap because they wouldn't understand how the plastic was containing them. The light was a trap. To escape, they'd need to go to the dark where they don't want to go. And it's like that with OCD. The way forward is going to where it's uncomfortable, where you certainly wouldn't want to go. But ironically, that's the way of gradually reducing it. So if family members appreciate the difficulty of that, and people with OCD give themselves a bit of self-compassion as well, recognising how difficult this is to do, but by chipping away, by containing, by reducing, by limiting the rituals, having some way of moving on, tolerating the anxiety, allowing the thoughts to be there to some extent but not acting on them and going for the dark, letting themselves sit with that discomfort, that gives the chance of seeing over time that these feared consequences aren't happening, then the anxiety can become somewhat less, can make it easier in turn to move on. So even if it's chipping away or reducing it, that's the direction. Going for the discomfort actually is ultimately the way of getting more freedom. So as always, we'll put all the resources for today's episode up at the chrismackey.com.au slash podcast page, including the Obsessive Compulsive Disorders handout, which is one of the more popular ones on the website as well. So if you're looking to go back on some of this information and don't necessarily want to listen to the whole episode again, feel free to check that one out at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. So Thanks again for today, Dad. I've enjoyed talking about all this sort of stuff and I suppose if there's anything that's going to come out of it from my end, I'm certainly not going to say again, you know, I'm, I'm so OCD about this because definitely don't want to trivialise the distress that some people feel. 
Yes, well, hopefully people have found some of the tips and themes today helpful, but our general approach, as we've talked about before, hopefully it's helping people to muddle through, get by, a coping approach, we call it, rather than a mastery approach. And so hopefully there's some ideas in this that people will find useful. Look forward to next week.